today's going to be unusual. I'm not going to be teaching my normal message. We've been in a, if you've been with us the last while, since the middle of May, we started a summer sermon series on the book of James. We've been working through the book of James for the last many weeks, and we have many weeks to go. And we're going to keep doing that, but we're taking a break today. Today we're going to step away from the series, and we're just going to really have a talk with us today. Uh, to be honest, uh, we've got a lot to say, and I, fortunately there's a meal afterwards, and the kids are going to keep us entertained over there. I can hear them. Um, we are going to... Um, I'm actually cut out some of my slides earlier because I just have too much here. So I'm going to look at just a couple Bible verses early on. And, you know, you, look, if you come to this church regularly, we, we, look at a, we use a lot of Scripture here. We're very scriptural in how we study. We know that. But today I'm going to look at a couple verses early on, and then I'm just going to talk to you the rest of the time. And it'll be more of a state of the church address, so to speak, today. Because, again, we're ending our fiscal year. We're starting a new year. And we have to wrap up a couple, a couple ends about our new deaconship. And just because, we, because we're in that mode, it's a chance to step away and do something unusual. So I'm just going to talk to us today. I don't know, I might move around a little bit. I'm, I should have asked Anthony in the back room if it's okay for, if I sat on the steps later and the camera's still or not. But I might just be just more informal today, even than I usually am. Just because I want to talk to us on this one unique Sunday. So bear with me as we just kind of share our heart and and make this fiscal year a time to just reflect. Let me start with this from Scripture for a little bit, and then we'll get into what I want to say from there. We mentioned in the last couple of weeks how that um, Jesus had given a new commandment before he left, before he was crucified, and his last night in the upper room of the disciples, he gave new marching orders. He said, I command you to love each other as I have loved you. And then he showed them what that looked like on the cross when he died for them and rose again. And we, we talked about Jesus' new command, which you don't need to give new commands when we had, they had tons of commands already, but Jesus was giving instructions going forward to his followers. And um, we've discussed that the last couple of weeks, really. What I want to do today, all right, what I want to do today is um, take a moment to um, remind us of Jesus' last words. Jesus actually gave lots of commands. He taught sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. His last words were after that. After Jesus died on the cross and after he rose again, he spent 40 more days here being viewed and witnessed by hundreds of people who saw him die and saw him rise again. They saw him and they, and they were witnesses. I hate to ask, can, 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 one, can um, one person do me a favor here? Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. That's going to distract me all service long. They, we moved the kids out of the big room because we're putting the, for the food in there later over here. And I think the doors are all opened and, and it's... Uh, it's not you, it's not them, it's me trying to, I'm already like a, you know, squirrel. I'm already, I'm already doing that, you know. So anyhow, um, okay, where was I? So Jesus had 40 days before he went back to heaven. People who saw him die and rise again were witnesses of him, and he spoke to them before he left. Jesus' last words before he literally ascended back to heaven, he gave what we in the church world have long called the Great Commission. If you've been around the church world long enough, you've probably heard the term, the Great Commission. And just so as you know, in case you've never heard that term, don't feel bad, that is actually not in the Bible. There's no place in the Bible where it says the words, the Great Commission. That's just a way that many of us people who've studied the scriptures have used to describe Jesus's final statement before he left. We call it that. And what I want us to do for to set the stage to look at some scripture before I talk about our church a little bit is I want to just look at the Great Commission and we find it in three of the Gospels. Matthew and Mark and Luke all give us this Great Commission, these last words of Jesus before he launched off. And I want to look at each one of them because they, they're each worded differently. That wording is different does not mean it's a contradiction. If you have a really weird view of of inspiration and preservation in Scripture, you might get hung up on the fact that these three guys gave the same message in different wording. But that's okay, because they have three different perspectives of what Jesus said. It's, it's, that's, that's what we want. We want different perspectives of the same event. So I want you to see how they described these last words of Jesus. So Mark, we'll start with Mark, because Mark was always short and to the point. Like Mark's the shortest gospel. He just gets to the point. And here's how he describes it in Mark 16, 15. Jesus told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Now, again, good news there 
is the, some of your older translations would use the word gospel there. Gospel means good news, okay? Just a church word. We sometimes forget the meaning. It's good news. That, what's the good news? That Jesus died for our sins. So we could be forgiven. That he rose again so that death lost its power so we could have eternal life. That we are invited to believe in his love and to receive his grace as a gift from God. And that's good news for all the world. And we should be spreading that wherever we go. And Jesus said, go preach that good news to everyone. That's pretty to the point. That's Mark. He would not be a good uh, uh, Baptist preacher today growing up because he got to the point too quickly. you got to draw it out for 45 minutes to an hour to make it better. Okay, Matthew gives us a little more commentary. Here's what Matthew tells us the same story. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority on heaven and on earth. Verse 19, he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's all the nations. That's kind of what Mark was saying when he said, go preach the good news. Go to everywhere and Tell them about who I am and what I've done and invite them to believe that and follow me. Go make disciples of all nations. And then then Matthew adds these details. Matthew says, Jesus also told them, baptize them. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he adds something else in verse 20. He says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. Now that's interesting. By the way, a couple things are interesting. Jesus didn't say, teach them to obey all the old commands ancient Hebrew scripture commands, although that's great, he was saying, all that I've taught you, things like the, the new commandment to love one another the way he loved us, all the things he taught in the Sermon on the Mount and other places, all the commands I've given you guys. And, and, and in this case, the command to go preach the gospel. What I'm telling you to do, preach that good news to people, and as they hear the good news of, of God's love, and as they believe it, baptize them, and then as they, as they do that, teach them to go do the same to go love each other and to spread the good news wherever they go. Just keep it going. Keep it going. So that you pass it on to somebody else and they believe and they get baptized and they are taught to pass it on and they do that and they pass it on and it just keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going through time. Perpetually. That's Matthew. Now Luke gives us a version of the same event. And Luke, but Luke does not do it in the Gospel of Luke. Luke does it in his follow-up letter. Luke also wrote the history of the early church in the book of Acts. And in the beginning of Acts, he tells us the same event. Here's how that goes. In Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Same thing Mark was saying. Go preach the good news to everyone. Go make disciples of all nations, Matthew said. They were all telling what Jesus said. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. And then Jesus explained where everywhere was. He says, in Jerusalem, that's where they were at the time. Throughout Judea, that's the country around them. In Samaria, that's the neighboring nations. And to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is saying, take it everywhere. And when you put it together, that we're supposed to pass it on to person after person so it keeps going through time, like Matthew said, and we're supposed to take it to all parts of the world. Like Luke, like Jesus said that Luke records it. All of it was what Jesus said. When you put all of it together, you'll find that Jesus is saying, pass this good news along throughout all the time. Pass it down generation. Pass it down to your neighbors. Pass it down to everybody. Keep it going throughout the generations, throughout the time, and to all the places, everywhere. And they did that. And despite persecution and despite problems that have happened through history and and you know, bad examples of how to follow Jesus throughout, you know, the history of the world. Ultimately, it's happened. You know how we know it's happened? Because here we are 2,000 years later on the other side of the planet in a room singing about Jesus and passing it on. So it must have worked, right? And now it's our job to keep doing the same thing, to pass it on, to pass it on to others. So, that's the Great Commission. What's funny is what Jesus didn't say. Like, Jesus never told them, okay, what I didn't put on the screen that we were going to put on the screen originally for sake of time was some earlier verses that talk about how Jesus said that he would build his church, which actually the Greek word is ekklesia, or it's an assembly, it's a gathering of people who believe. It's not only about a building, it's about a gathering of people. He would build his assembly, like the Avengers, he would build his assembly uh, on the idea of who he was and what he came to do, the gospel. Who he was, he was God. And he would build that on who he was and what he came to do to, to, to save the world, that message that we're given. The church would grow. So as Jesus is leaving here and he gives this, what we call the Great Commission, to go spread the gospel 
to everyone. He, he could have helped them. He could have said, now, when you do, you're going to have people assemble, and you're going to start these gatherings you're going to call churches. Here's what they should all be named. They should all have the same name. And I've even picked a den- denominational title for all of you to own. So own the same denominational. And by the way, here's how your church leadership structure should look, and here's how your programming should be. He didn't do any of that. He just said, go spread the good news. And then he left. Like, literally, look at the next verse, verse 9. Here's what happens. After saying this, Jesus was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. He just went, he left them. I'm like, wait, we have more questions. Like, what do we call this thing, and, and how do we structure our, our, our system? And do we have a constitution? Can you give us a sample constitution for our system? And can you, um, I don't know, can you give us some programming ideas? And there's a whole lot more questions. Wait, he just left. Like, Jesus' closing words were two things. Number one, go preach the gospel everywhere. Number two, see you later, alligator. That was it. That was his final words. They're like, yeah, but we have more questions. They, no, 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 no. Go be my witnesses and after a while, crocodile. That was it. That was it. So, but Jesus, you forgot to tell us about the structure, the programming, the organization. That's not the point. The message is the point. So before I get into, let me just, let me stop here and do this. If you think about this in context, if you think about this in context, here's what you have. The early church, with that simple instruction, figured it out. Like, what, read the book of Acts, and what happens next was they went back to Jerusalem. They gathered into an upper room in a chamber, in a room, in Herod's outer courtyard, in the broader temple area, which is a big, very big area. People could meet. They gathered in an upper room. There was 120 of them that were still devoutly meeting, while others were ready to believe. 120 of them met together in an upper room for a week and prayed. 11 of them were the disciples. One of the disciples, the 12th one, Judas, had hung himself. So there's 11 left. And then they decided they needed to fill his position, so they picked the 12th one and added him to the group because Jesus was gone. They had to figure this out. So they put the 12 guys in there. And then they prayed for a week for 120 people with 12 apostles. And then all of a sudden, Pentecost feast was happening, and people were gathered in the courtyards of the temple, and, they, and miracles took place and drew a crowd, and they preached the gospel. Peter did what Jesus said to do. He preached the gospel, and thousands of people believed. And thousands of people got baptized, and thousands of people began to meet together in this new assembly or church all of a sudden. Just like that. And so now they have thousands of people and still 12 apostles, like they had when they had 120 people. They still had 12 apostles. And then the apostles started moving. James, the disciple, was beheaded. And then some of the others got scattered to other places. Uh, James, the half-brother of Jesus, was not in the picture. He kind of came into the leadership and eventually became kind of the leader uh, in some ways of the Church of Jerusalem. They all scattered. And then if you get to Acts chapter 6, growth brought problems because growth always brings complications. So as they grew... They had problems. So, for example, Acts 6 tells us that at some point there were widows who were helped because what the people of the church did in the beginning was they sold all their properties. Many of them sold their property. They gave them money. And they just took their to pooled resources to help these believers who were relocating. They just kind of pulled together to make this happen. And when you read that, it's crazy because it was really a very communal style of, of, of living. They just kind of gave all their stuff and said, feed the poor. And remember, when we refer to widows in those days, it was hard to be a woman in those days. Women didn't have, they couldn't own property in many cultures. They couldn't uh, vote. They sure couldn't testify in court. If you're a widow or an orphan without a man to take care of you, you were probably in trouble. Just how it was at that time. And so they took care of these people who were widows and orphans. But at some point in the early church of history of Acts, some of the widows were saying we're getting neglected. And it, they thought it was a racial thing because they said some of us who are Greek are getting neglected and these other ones are getting fed. And there was a dissension, there was a problem within the growing church body. So the disciples are scratching their heads, and they're like, guys, we can't handle this. Pick out seven people. They're running thousands at this point, like countless thousands, because they've grown more since then. Like, pick seven people out amongst you, full of honest report, to help us take care of this problem. Pick pick seven people who are already involved and plugged in and doing this thing. And they picked like seven people, uh, Stephen, Philip, and five others. They said, okay, and then they took care of those problems that were emerging in their body. And then the other apostles were like, now we can get back to studying the word and, and, and prayer and ministry. 
and they just kept going. But they dealt with the problems as they came. And then as they scattered and they spread churches in other cities and in other Gentile lands, you see Paul and Peter and James writing letters to these churches saying, hey, here's how you take care of business where you are. In fact, Paul writes some letters to Timothy. Paul was once in Ephesus for years, writes letters to Timothy, who's now leading the church movement in Ephesus. And he says, here's kind of how you lead in Ephesus in a first century context. And then he says to Titus, here's how you lead in the first century context in Crete. By the way, it's weird. Why did not Paul send the same letter to both Timothy and Titus, word for word? Because if it's the same set of instructions for everybody, right? But he knew that what Timothy needed to hear about Crete was different than what, I'm sorry, what Timothy, Titus needed to hear about Crete was different than Timothy and Ephesus. So he gave them different letters. They were similar, but they were different. Because in their own context, they had different problems to figure out. So we read these letters, and by reading the history of Acts in these letters, we are given a commentary on how the early church did the one thing that Jesus told them to do before he left. Preach the good news. And as they did and as they grew, they dealt with their problems. We can see it happen in Acts. We can see it happen in Timothy and Titus and other places that were specific to them 2,000 years ago in local cities in the Middle East. And that's helpful. But, but Jesus didn't give them all that instruction. He just said, go, preach, and he left. Spread the good news. Now, I want to talk about that a little bit more today before we're done. That's what I'll spend most of my time talking about before we're done. But what I want to do, first of all, is take a moment to step back and just remind you, in case you don't know, about our church. We have a mission statement and stuff. Maybe you don't care. That's fine. But um, just we have a mission statement. Some churches don't have mission statements. We didn't used to. We decided to do it one day. Honestly, most mission statements in churches are similar. I mean, their wording might be different, but it's the same big idea. They're not usually very controversial. So, for example, our mission statement here we, we adapted was our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Again, every church's mission statement is probably something with maybe different wording, same big idea. We're there to bring people to the Lord and connect them to him, blah, blah, blah. It's usually not very controversial because it's not very specific. Because usually the trouble becomes when you start getting into the how you do it part, that's when people get, you know, more particular. So that's ours. Then we had a vision statement years ago, and honestly, it was, it was good. The problem was it was hard to really put it out of theory or philosophy and into practice. And so it was almost as theoretical as the mission statement. It was, it was just a concept. And it had trouble, we had trouble measuring it. And we still do with a new one, but we just had to give it a, a step towards strategy from mission to strategy. So we, we, we kind of changed our vision statement to say that, bottom line, we are for Cedar Lake. We're for Cedar Lake. Because our church is in Cedar Lake. We're not just for Cedar Lake. We're for Crown Point. We're for Lowell. We're for all the towns around us. We're for our, our state, our nation, our world, our community. We're for where we are. And because our church is here, we're for, we're for Cedar Lake as a church. And, I, and the long version of that vision is this. Our long version looks like this. For far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we're for. And we are for Cedar Lake. So for far too long, the church, capital C Church, broadly, we've been, especially in America, we've gotten known, sadly, for what we're against. We at Lighthouse Church, we want to be known for what we're for. We are for our community. We are for people because God is for people, because God sent his son to die for people. We want to be for people because he was and he is. That is our vision. And then we put a strategy together where we say, how do we implement what we do? There's lots of things we can do, but, but we went to Acts chapter 2 when the early church kind of exploded on the scene, and we saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, some big ideas, and we said, you know, those are kind of the big ideas of what we're doing as a church. So we call these five words to explain our strategy. I'll put them on the screen, and then I'll talk about them. The words are gather, connect, serve, invite, give. Those five ideas explain what we try to, to, to be about in our strategy and, and what we do as a church. And there's so many programs a church can have. And there's so much to do, and it gets complicated. So, so we gather, connect, serve, invite, and give. Let's just keep it that simple. So gathering means we come on Sunday morning. We, hear, we, sing, we worship through music together. We hear God's word taught. We um, fellowship with each other. We gather. Connecting refers to getting uh, into small groups, which we struggled with through, through uh, COVID, and we're re pushing this year. And even right now, we're implementing some of that. So we're connecting, Sunday school classes, small groups, whatever you want to call them. So we get out of rows and we get into circles. And we get to know each other and talk to each other and pray for each other and learn about each other. That's a big idea. We gather, we connect, 
we serve. That's self-explanatory. Jesus served us. We serve each other. We serve this community and serve one another the way Jesus served us. It's a big idea for Jesus followers. We invite. Inviting is ultimately, we're all supposed to invite, preach the gospel, preach the good news to people. So we invite people to, to Jesus. We invite them to faith or invite them to church where they can come and start a conversation to eventually come to faith in Jesus. But we invite and then the last thing is we give. Because again, we're, the scriptures command us to, Jesus told us to. And not only did he serve and give to us, but when we, when we are, who are supposed to serve and give, if I and you serve individually and give individually, we can do some good. But if we come together and we serve and, and give together collectively, we have synergy, we can do more together. That's what a church body is, is gather people who come and do these things together. And so these are the five things our organization tries to drive forward as a local church. And honestly, it's kind of our discipleship tract. Like there are more things than those five things that a person should do. Like you and I, we should all be like, you know, read our Bible, pray, be good husbands or wives or moms and dads and parents and citizens. There's lots of things. To, 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 there's an endless list. But as, a, as a, a gathering organizational body, kind of our track for growing in our church body is those same five things. We want people to start gathering more. If someone comes to church, come gather with us. Hopefully as you come, come more often, gather more regularly. Connect, get into a group, serve in some way, find a way to serve, invite others into the faith, invite them to church, give. So this kind of becomes our track to help us measure. And by the way, it's how we kind of find our leadership pool. We mentioned having a new deacon coming on. One of the things we look when we look for church leaders is people who, who are invested into our vision. Not because our strategy is the only way to do church. I actually have a pastor friend the other day who they have a very older school model of church where they have Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night services. And while I don't, we don't do that, and that's fine for them, if I was in that church and wanted to be in a leadership position in that church, I probably ought to gather Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night. Wednesday. I, ought to, I ought to be involved in what, how they do it. Not because it's the right way necessarily, but because that's what they're trying, that's their expression. And it's hard for an organization or a body of people to operate if the key people don't have haven't bought into the same vision, obviously. So as a church, because these are what we're about, we look for people in our church who gather, connect, serve, invite, give. And if someone does several of those things well, they kind of buy into what we're about, we're like, okay, they're, 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 they're pulling the same direction with us, and, and they're, they're in it. Like, like in Acts 6, the people who are already kind of in and helping, let's draw leadership from those circles. And so as names get nominated, we find our leadership from people who just say, and no one has to follow that structure. It's a, we love people no matter where they are. I say, I say it all the time. You are more important than what you do. But as we look for leadership, we want to find people who kind of buy into where we're going and, and exemplify our, our qualities well. So that becomes our structure and our strategy. Now, why do we simplify it this way? Because some years ago, when we, I, I came from a fundamentalist background. That's how I was raised and Michelle was raised. And we're both, we're both preacher's kids. I'm a preacher's kid. I was raised in church. Michelle's a preacher's kid raised in church. And we, we kind of fo followed the path. We became pastors. We were in the same kind of movement. Years later, we, we pulled out of it. We kind of came to a gospel realization, and we pulled out of that. And as we reinvented ourselves, which is a big journey, um, we, one of the things we did early on was try to figure out how to model our church going forward. And we decided to... Um, you know, we read a book, and by the way, if you want a good book to read, this is a good book. It's a book called Simple Church. Um, simple Church is um, just a simple, uh, it, the study from Lifeway Resources, where these guys went and they did extensive research across America, because uh, you might not know this, but in across America, we're turning into a very post-Christian nation. Like, the gospel's spreading like crazy across the world, but in the, the U.S. of A. and in Western nations, it's been on the decline for a while, and the U.S. has been struggling. So while there are some individual churches growing, dozens close up every single week across America. And, and, so, and a lot of the people I know in larger churches will admit that much of their big church growth has come from the small churches closing down and people relocating. We're not, we're not winning the battle as a nation. So it's been, a, it's been an uphill battle. And so these people began to travel and do research across the nation of what does it look like in these different contexts where, what churches are actually healthy and growing today in a, in a healthy way? Because you can grow in an unhealthy way too. And what they figured out was that the churches that were doing well were simplified. Because we have a very complicated culture. Everything's complicated. Every, you ever read the terms and conditions of something you sign up for on the internet? Yeah, it's terrifying. It's like every, every government bureaucracy and all the red tape there. It's all this complicated. So they said simplify it. Churches have tons of programming. Everyone's busy. And then they get burned out. And then they say we need revival. So let's get busier still. So they said just simplify. 
And churches that simplify their structure, simplify their programming, simplify their message are more effective. And we're trying to figure that out too. And we're learning. So that was a good book. You should read that sometime, by the way. It was, it was a, it's a good book. I think, Glenn, I think you read that or you got a copy of that back in the day a few years ago. And uh, some of our other leaders have read that. It's a good book to read. Anyhow, so why do we do this? Why do we simplify our message to gather, connect, serve, invite, give, and just kind of focus our, our focus on a few basic things? Because we want to be simple. Because when Jesus left, he gave simple orders. What were his last words? He's like, he's leaving. He says in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. And then he flies away. Bye. Oh, wait. <laughs> someone had, someone, I, Peter had his iPad out. He's like, I have a whole list of questions. He's like, no, nah, I just figured it out. Just preach the good news. And so here's what I just want to talk to you for a little bit before we're done today. Because of that, we, we've tried hard to keep it simple so we can stay focused. Simple structure, simple programming, simple message. Simple structure, simple programming, simple message. So what does that look like? I'm just going to talk to you from my heart uh, for a few minutes here, and then we'll go eat. We have food here. If you're online, you can't. You can come eat if you're close enough by. You can just drive here. If you're in Texas or Michigan, like some of you are, I can't help you there. But uh, anyhow, yeah. But anyhow, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes from my heart. So here's the thing. As we try to keep a simple structure at Lighthouse Church, we don't want to get hung up on which structure is best or even try to debate the translation of the early church structure in the first century in modern context in the Middle East. We just don't want to do that. We simply want to get the idea right about organizing as we need to to preach, the, spread the gospel to everyone, the good news to everyone. So once in a while, people come and they're like, well, the church, you know, what positions does the church have? And then people talk, I've seen churches across America argue about, do you have deacons or elders or other bishops? What are overseers? Do you have apostles and pastors? And, and what's your, how many people and what positions do you have? And I'm like, you know, most of our denominations, I just want to say this, most denominations in America, really at the core level, they all believe, mostly they believe that same message. There's some doctrinal differences people can argue about. Like they can debate, you know, Calvinism versus Arminianism and how sovereignty and free will work together. They can debate concepts like, you know, if someone is, believes and then they stop, were they never really a believer or did they lose it or did they, are they still a believer but are they wayward? They can argue theology about the rapture, the end times, tribulation periods. They can argue about so many things doctrinally. The Holy Spirit, his role, what it is, what it isn't. But a lot of their arguments are really about church structure. Like, what do you call your people? How do you organize your polity? Is it congregational-led? Is it a board list? Is it leadership? What's the leadership structure? It's just all sorts of stuff. And, and honestly, most of them believe the same core message about the gospel, the good news. And the reason I point that out is because that's all I want to be about. And that's what we've tried to make our church about. If you're new, that's what we want to be about. Because here's why. I think the rest of it's noise. If you could just for a minute picture someone who does not know the good news. They don't know Jesus. How does it help them? What we need to tell them is God loves them and gave his son for them and wants a relationship with them and to bring them into that. How does it help someone who doesn't believe and is looking in to see all these churches not just disagreeing but fighting with each other about church polity and structure and other kind of stuff? It's just like these guys can't even get along with each other and they're angry about it. I don't need that. It's a confusing, unhelpful message. And it doesn't matter because Jesus didn't bother. He just said, figure it out. And people who usually argue are saying, well, I think what they did in the, in the book of uh, Timothy or Acts is this. What they did was, that's, that's a description of what they did when they obeyed that. In their context, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. It's descriptive. Listen, it's very important. It's descriptive of them carrying out that one command of Jesus in their own context. We make it too prescriptive sometimes. And so we start fighting over terms that are ancient and don't even make sense anymore. And it's not helping anyone with that. And we lose this. In, our, in the middle of our squabbles, we lose the main message. And, 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 and this is a broad problem that until we can figure out how to clarify this, we're not going to help, we're not going to be as effective in helping people come to Jesus. And it's much bigger than one church, but our church is part of it. So arguing old terms. Well, what terms do you use? Uh, bishops, elders, deacons, this, that, are they the same title? It's contextual. For example, the term pastor means shepherd. You know, shepherd made sense 2,000 years ago in an agrarian call. People were shepherds a lot in the old days. Like, let's be honest here. Probably no one here has ever been a shepherd, for real. 
You probably culturally understand shepherding because of your religious background with the analogies from those days or just from history. But, but that made, it was a good illustration at the time to say, let's call people who lead well shepherds because that's a term that you all can understand about how we lead gently. But that isn't our current context. Seriously, I mean, like, in fact, we even hate it. We're like, are you calling me a sheep? I'm nobody's sheep, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's funny how those terms can change. But when I see someone comes to me sometimes and I'll have someone say, I, Arlen, I saw a church recently that they have their leadership structure. They have executive pastors and I can't believe you use terms like that. That sounds like the world system and oh, I can't believe that. Well, who cares? Who cares? To call? But the same person who complains about the, a church that uses the term executive pastor probably used the term assistant pastor in their background and that was okay. Who cares? That's silly. That's silly to fight about. It's silly to fight about what shepherds and elders and bishops are. Like, seriously, here's a, little, here's a little I think we should care. Like, let's just call, let's make new terms up. Like, let's just call the church leadership team, the, whatever that structure looks like, let's just call them the, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker from now on. Let's just like, just, who, it does not matter because in context, what we have is Jesus saying, go spread the message and as people assemble, figure out how to deal with the problems that assembling and growth brings. And they did, and we can read about it, but we shouldn't be fighting about it. We should just do our best to keep it simple, focused on that. So when people get really hung up on, well, Paul said this to Timothy in Ephesus. Yeah? About the, the, this position and that position. How far do you want to take that? If you're not going to treat it like it's descriptive, and you're trying to make it too prescriptive, let me ask you a question. How far do we take it? Remember what I said earlier about the early church? Do we model that particularly? Do we have to wait till we have exactly 120 people gathered into an upper room? And make sure 12 of those 120 people are called apostles. And if one died, then we replace them, of course, because you've got to have 12. And then we keep only 12, and then we've got to have a growth of thousands of people before we can even start. We have to have thousands of people before we can even make our first position of a deacon or whatever you want to call that. We keep, there was no deacons in the first church until they had thousands of people. Do we not have any leadership like that for, until we have thousands? If we're going to really follow it to, the, to that letter of the prescriptive law, we shouldn't have no deacons until we run thousands. And we should have apostles and one should get beheaded. I'm not volunteering for that one. We should get somebody else in their place and we should spread. I mean, let's be honest. It's just what they did as they grew spreading the gospel to figure out how to solve their problems. We're not in Jerusalem. We're not in Ephesus. So as I read the description of how they fulfilled the Great Commission, that's good, but that's just informative. That's descriptive to help us make sure our structure makes sense today. What we're trying to do is not create gridlock or puffed up positions of self-importance. One of the reasons why our deacons are people we pick who are already serving in the churches because we're looking for people who, who already serve, not for folks who come in who want a title. That's always dangerous. We want people just, we're doing the work, it's simple. We just need people who fill roles, who can lead the church through tough times when we have them, who are already serving because that's just simple. And it's not about complicated processes. And by the way, we should never be down about other churches and how they do things. I'll say that more that before I'm done. Simple structure. Okay, I'm going to take a minute here. We have a little, we're, we're, it's running late, and, but I'm going to take a minute here before I make my last points, which will be shorter, to kind of poke the bear a little bit here. I want to make this very plain, so I'm going to poke the bear. Is that the right term? Do you poke the bears? I don't know if you, I've never tried that before. But anyhow, I'm just going to kind of, get, kind of get a little controversial here on purpose to make my point. I've been in church long enough to see people get kind of upset. So let me, let me take an intentional detrail, derail here for a few minutes, okay? How many people in church will get upset if they're really religious because they say, I've seen churches where women are in leadership roles. And the Bible says, and Tim, Paul said to Timothy one time, women should keep silence in the church. And all this other stuff. And I'm like, wait, what? Time out what? And by the way, we have, we have women in leadership roles in our church. We have one of our deacons is, is Jennifer Gaudy. Um, and we don't use elder models, so that's basically an elder for us. But anyhow, um, here's the point. My, my question is, what do you mean? Paul said women should keep silence in the church. Do you mean they can't be deacons? Because in the Bible, Phoebe was in Romans chapter 16, a deacon. So that's there. They can't speak or preach or pro we call it prophesying in those days because Philip, one of the first deacons, Philip had seven daughters who all prophesied. It's in the Bible. Say, so, well, I just think that, it, what does it mean? What did it mean in a culture where women couldn't vote, couldn't own property, or couldn't contest in court? 
And Paul was speaking specifically to Timothy in one context where they were in Ephesus where they worshipped Diana of the Ephesians and there was a matriarchal worship form and saying in this context that was very contrary to how their patriarchal culture worked, how to do their religion. And whenever someone gets dogmatic about Paul said this so women can't do this or women can't do that, I always want to ask them, I always want to ask someone like that, what do you do when Paul, one page later, I'm going to get personal here, what do you do when one page later when Paul says masters treat your slaves well and slaves obey your masters? Can I be frank with you? I have some atheist friends or some agnostic friends. One of their hang-ups, they're not bad people making fun of God. They are sincere people. One of their hang-ups is that they say if God was, if this was God's word and Jesus was, why didn't he tell us, why didn't he abolish slavery then? If he didn't abolish it for the whole world, why didn't he, didn't he at least tell his believers? And once you become a believer in our culture, it all ends. Why did he just speak into it? Why did you have New Testament writings of saying slaves obey those masters of yours because God says so and masters, you know, treat them right? Why, why did he just say that, that we're ending that? That's what my agnostic people I know would say. What do we answer? Maybe you don't know anyone who would question you on that level because we're in a bubble. We live in a little bubble so we don't, we don't lie. We plug our ears and we ignore those heathens who, who question our beliefs. But if you love someone who's asking that question, what do you say to them? What I hope you would say, here's what I say, here's what I would say, and it's not an easy answer, but I would say that, that Jesus came, Jesus didn't come to fix all of societal woes or to fix the politics of the world. He simply came to bring a message that was prophesied before he came and since he's left, that God loves the world and he was there to die for our sins, to show us forgiveness, rise again. That was his message, that God wants you back more than he wants you to pay. And that his message, that he left is spread that message to the world. That was it. He didn't fix all the problems. He didn't try to overthrow governments. He didn't try to make Israel a political power again. He didn't try and fix societal woes. He did, he was progressive. Like when, when women didn't have a lot of rights in those old days, Jesus was progressive. Like women were, like the first witnesses of the empty tomb were women. You could be witnesses in the day. He, he was. You have women like Phoebe and Aquila, Priscilla, Aquila's wife and, and uh, Philip's daughters. I mean, there was, there was progressiveness there. There was better treatment of slaves because God taught, Jesus taught to love each other, treat each other right, but he didn't abolish bad systems. He didn't, that wasn't the task he took on. He spoke into them, and if we follow the principles of Scripture in time, those things will get corrected. I would argue that chattel slavery in the U.S. history is different than the kind of slavery that was back then, but it still wasn't good slavery. But we've made progress and women have made progress in rights. A hundred years ago, they couldn't vote in our country. You girls couldn't vote. It's horrible. And it's still not right. It's a lot of you girls, you, you get less pay for equal work, and it's not right. And we're making progress. We've got further to go in a lot of issues. But if, but, but, but if you look at the, the context of speaking into slavery there, they didn't abolish it in there because that wasn't the point of the message of the gospel. It was to preach the love of Jesus. And as we follow his pattern, we will fix those problems in time. That's my defense to someone who pushes against that. Hopefully that would be what you'd say to somebody who says, well, why is there slavery there? Why is, is, Jesus, is Paul saying we should all own slaves or be one and treat them each other right? No. He was speaking into a context of saying, as you live in this messed up world and society, be a Jesus follower in this mess and we'll figure this out as we go. That's what I'd say. That's not a satisfying answer to some of my atheistic friends. But it's probably for some of us, it's like, we've got to have an answer that makes us feel good. But when I come back to those church people who would argue, that's just how it was then, but that's not, that, wasn't, that was just a, that's not, that's, don't take that too hard. That's just progress has been made. But the same people say women must be silent in the church. I'm like, are you crazy? Read one page later. What are you going to do with that? You have to either decide that, that in the culture that they lived where there was slaves in a time when women couldn't have votes or rights or anything else, that, that, that they were operating in a context that makes sense and, and, and look at all the progress that was being shown in the scriptures. And if you're going to be dogmatic on one issue, and no, no one should say, a girl shouldn't say a word when they lead singing, they shouldn't lead singing, they shouldn't say a word before they lead a song, they shouldn't give announcements, they shouldn't lead a group, they shouldn't be in a position. If you're going to take a hardline position because of a verse from Paul, who, by the way, Paul also said men should have short hair, women should have long hair, and everyone should never, and everyone should never get married. Paul said everyone should remain single like me. Most of us have blown that one at least once in our lives. So, Whoops, because Paul believed the Lord was coming back in his lifetime. He said, we who are alive and remain be caught up together, so don't waste your time settling down, just do it. And that's good information to study and to understand. It's a good description of them doing what Jesus said to do, to preach the good news to everyone. But if we're going to take certain spots and be dogmatic and say, you can't do this and you can't do that, because of the context 2,000 years ago and the descriptiveness, 
Be careful that you don't paint yourself into a corner that you can't defend to an honest critic, an indefensible position. Be careful that you're not looking at something that we could simply look at the Bible and say, I see the history, the description of how the early church took off with the one clear instruction Jesus gave them as he left flying high, preached the goons everywhere, and figure it out. And as I see how they did it, that's instructive to me. It's descriptive to me. But be careful. Now, I know that was controversial. Someone's going to come to me later and say, I can't believe that you, it sounds like you were advocating that uh, gender roles should be broken down in the church leadership. Whatever, take what you want to. But if you're going to have that conversation with me, let's do it over coffee and let me bring my agnostic friends. You can sit there and tell him why slavery is okay or tell us both how you're going to pick and choose which part of the Bible you're going to consider descriptive and which part you're going to consider prescriptive. And I have a feeling we're all going to be in some tough, tough moments there. I'm, I'm needling, aren't I? I'm sorry. But I want, us to, I want us to just do better. I want us to be a church that keeps it simple and puts all that other stuff on the back shelf. Simple structure, simple programming. We're almost done now, so let me make these last. This is the, lo- the last longest point. Simple programming. What do we mean by simple programming? We gather, connect, serve, invite, give. The church can do a thousand things and be so busy that it can't keep its, itself straight. And then it needs to have another boost of more programs. And sometimes people come to a church and we're like, we are sentimental to certain programs. We want to add programs that we like. But we should do what we do already well. Uh, there's another pastor, another book if you want a book reference. Uh, Craig Groeschel, who pastors Life Church in Oklahoma, Oklahoma, wrote, by the way, he's the guy who, their church invented the Huge Version Bible app. If you probably have the Huge Version Bible app, that's from Life Church. Craig Groeschel wrote a book one time called It. No, not the Stephen King book called It. That's a different one. That's also very good. Now, he wrote a book called It, and uh, in his book, he um, describes... In his book, he describes how that they had five church locations and campuses, and one of their campuses was struggling to be healthy and, and, and grow healthily. And he guess which one it was. It was the main one. It was his. And he said when they figured out what was wrong, they had gotten busy with lots of busy programmings and things that they were lost their way. So they stepped back to their five basics. Their five basics, I think, were weekend services, small groups, children's ministry, student ministry, which is teenagers, and outreach. Doesn't matter what their five are. Point is, they just simplified it back and said, We're going to do these things only, cut everything else out for the foreseeable future until we can rock these few things well. Then we can add more complication later once we do this well. That's good thinking, keeping it simple. Like sometimes people will come and they'll be like, Hey, Arlen, you know what we should do? We should start an Awana program for the kids in the middle of the week. And I'm always like, Cool, we used to do that. Here's my question Do you want to bring your kids to our Awana program or do you want to help us run our Awana program? Because I bet you, I can't find enough people to help us run the Awana program. Can I tell you a better plan? Every Sunday morning, 52 weeks a year, we have a kids program right here, and it's an awesome program, and it's over here today. The kids love it. And here's the thing. It could be better if we had more workers who every week could sit down with a group of kids and sit in a circle and do life with those kids, right? Spend time with those kids, pray with those kids, men who are sitting in circles and pouring into kids. We can do better. But you know our curriculum is phenomenal. It's orange curriculum. It's of 252 Basics. That curriculum actually has a plan to where if you're running it fully, you'd have once a month parent kid, kid days where the parents and kids come together for a, a special service and they do some skits and the, and the leaders would teach the parents what they're teaching the kids. They can go home and work on it together during the month. It's a whole cool thing. We can't pull it off even though we got a good version because we don't have enough help. There's a lot of weekly commitment to do that stuff every single week. And our kids' workers are faithful people, but boy, we could use more. So before we don't make that all it can be, but instead leave it as it is, which is good, and then add another kids' program that we can barely staff with the same tired people, is that really the best plan? Or is it better to say, let's do what we need to do every week better? And once we've rocked that, we can add more layers. Same with Vacation Bible School. It's a great idea. But most of what churches do, it is the same kids shuffle from church to church for four program, weeks of programming in the summer. And if the church exhausts itself, and people who want it usually will offer to help out in these certain ways, but a few other people have got to take on the brunt of it, and everyone's exhausted afterwards. And if you really want to reach your community, the best thing to do is help the weekly kids program be better. Not have a once-a-month show to exhaust yourself. See, the point is that what happens is we get stuck into these, I'm sentimental to this because when I was a kid we did this, or when I was younger, or our church used to. That's fine. But let's do what we have to do better. And once we've done all that we should do really well, we're greeting better with guest services, we're worshiping well, we our, stuff, our, our groups are getting back to old form, and we're doing groups well. 
and we're like getting bored. We have too many volunteers with not enough to do. Let's add more programming. But right now we need more volunteers to do what we already need to do better. So there's no reason to complicate it further. Just keep it simple in structure, simple in programming, and do what we're supposed to do well. And the last thing is simple message. Our message is simple, to go preach good news to everyone. That's why we have our mission statement, our vision of being four Cedar Lake. That's why we have our strategy, to keep it simple. Our message is simple. Let me say this clearly. Our message is not supposed to be political. I think one of the worst things that happened to the church in the last few decades was the moral majority. Horrible, because it, the fruit is now showing itself up in our, our church today because a bunch of people have married their politics to their religion, and you can't tell where their gospel stops and their political allegiances start. It's horrible. We've lost our way about being about that, to be about something that's less good than that. And we end up endorsing very bad, corrupt people because they're in our party and we ignore their flaws. And we, become, we become hypocrites and jerks politically. And our churches are ripe with this stuff and it needs a purging, but it's hard to purge because we're all so confused between the gospel and politics and it's horrible. And we're keeping our message simple. It's not political. We don't want to be divisive or critical of other ministries. This is very important to us. We do not, we do not be critical of other ministries. I said this last service, and I'll say it again. Um, churches that do things differently, that's good. If you come to me and say, Arlen, can you believe such and such a church does it this way? I'm like, who cares? Hopefully they preach the gospel. If they don't, that's, that's between them and God. I have enough, and you have enough to say grace over at 13419 Parish Avenue. Why worry about somebody else? In fact, I said this last service, and someone in our church came up to me between services just now and said to me, and it surprised me, they said, they said, Pastor, they said, you don't probably, I didn't remember this actually, but when they first came to our church, they came from another church and they felt hurt, which happens to us. If we've been in long enough, we'll hurt people. People just hurt people. We're broken and flawed. And they came here hurt and they were unloading their concerns. And they told me, they said, you looked at us and you told us, let's pray for that church. And you, you didn't get critical. You encouraged us to not be critical, but to forgive and pray for them. And they said, it changed our whole heart. And when you were preaching this morning, it reminded us that's what we want to be. And I was so glad to hear that because I had forgotten that story. But here's what I want our church to do. We're just four people. When we're running around trying to find out who's apostate and who's heretical and who's wrong with this and who does this wrong and this right, when you listen to podcasts or other things that get you all worked up about what's wrong with churches, you can do that. But people need to know the good news. And it's hard. It's hard to keep it simple. We want to stay ready to be for the community. We want to help. We want to do what we can do. We want to be known for what we're for because God so loved the world that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, we could use more people who help us serve in our current processes, we could use more help. If you, want to, if you look at our church and see what we do and say, is that what you do? Trust me, there's more that we want to do that you can't see that we don't even do because we, we could use more help. So if you want to serve in some way up front or behind the scenes, do us a favor. Come see me, write out a connection card, put it in the box, let me know. We'll help you find a way to plug in. There's more that we want to do that we aren't doing or that we are doing that you might not know about. We just need volunteers. Let me know. Let's plug you in. Let's serve together. Gather, connect, serve, invite, and give. Now, in the end, in the end, the gospel, which means good news, the gospel, the good news is that Jesus loves you enough to die for you and rise again for you. That Jesus loves me enough to die for me and rise again for me. That our message to this community and all around us is that Jesus loves them enough to die for them and rise again for them. It's good news. And if the church is known for a message other than good news, we have learned the wrong message. And if we say, well, of course we're about the good news. But the thing, the impression we're giving everybody else is something different. We've become known for the wrong thing. We want to be known for what we're for. We want to be known for the gospel. And we've got to fight past our other noise to make sure that that's coming through loud and clear. Because we need, we need to keep it simple. Because staying focused on Jesus is hard enough. Because I was raised in church, I'm a preacher's kid, and so Michelle and I talk about this all the time. I know something about the church world. I know that there's a lot of men, especially, and women too. I, don't be too stereotypical. There's a lot of people. They get drawn to church movements because they want a good fight. They want something to stand for. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And they want to fight. So they want, they want a political-leaning church. Or they want a church that says, we're the right ones. They're all the wrong ones. They want something to be worked up about. They want to listen to talk about the apostasy of this and the heresy of that. And I get that. There's a fighter in so many people. Can I suggest a better fight? If you want a cause to stand for and grit your teeth for, let's fight to stay focused on Jesus because that's hard. That's hard. 
It just is. Because inevitably, churches drift into other issues and other cultural battles and other things that are less important. We begin to divide with each other and point fingers and have splits and have this or disagreements. And it's just, it's easy to get lost. It's hard. Paul said in Corinthians, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's hard to do that. You want to fight. Fight for the cause to keep us gospel-centered and to push the other noises away. If you want to be passionate and worship for something, be worked up to keep it focused on the gospel and bring that hope to a world that needs to know some good news. That's before our community. That's a fight worth having. That's a fight worth having for each of us. So that's it in a nutshell. I just kind of vomited out, hey, it's an off Sunday. We're not doing our series. That's just kind of a reminder. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We are for Cedar Lake. For far too long, the church has been known for what it's against. We want to be known for what we're for. We are for Cedar Lake. Our strategy is to gather, connect, serve, invite, give. Our discipleship track works the same way. We want to do those things better before we get complicated. Structure, it doesn't matter. Titles, who cares? Systems, those happen. They happen in Acts. They happen in Ephesus. They happen in Crete. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. They happen today in Western culture in a different time and place. That's all Different people in different times figuring out how to do the one thing Jesus said to do, to spread the good news to everyone. That's how people become saved. That's how they become believers, and that's how we have eternal life. Spread the good news to everyone. That's it. Now, how that looks, here's the thing. The methods may change, but the message does not. The methods should change, but the message does not. And if you get married to methods, you're going to end up fighting and calling people names, including heretical apostates, if you're not careful, over methods when we should be reserving our anger and our passion to point it towards the message of the good news of the gospel. The message never changes, even if the times change and culture changes. That's fine. We adapt. But the message stays true. Let's fight to stay true to the message and not drift. And that's my rambling today to call us all back to what we're trying to be about at Lighthouse Church. And it's not for everyone. Thank God there's a lot of churches in the world like, going to a church in America is like, go, go to a town, it's like, you know, I remember this church for 20 years and I'm mad at you, Arlen. Good, I'm not mad at me too half the time. If you have a problem with me, i got 10 problems with me. I can give you a longer list than you have probably. Here's the thing. We get mad at each other. But here's the thing, and I don't think we do. I think we have a very healthy church that loves each other. I really do. But here's the point. It's like, a, it's like an ice cream parlor in America. Like, I can go across town and find butter pecan. No, I prefer mint chocolate chip. We don't live in a place in the world where we have to pick the only gospel-preaching church in 50 miles. We can, we can be picky. That's good, but it's also bad because it drives consumerism in our mentality about how to do church. And that's not healthy. And it causes us to fight over lesser things than the gospel. So let's be for the other churches in our town. Let's just be for them. Let's just befriend them. Let's pray for them. Let's help them if we can. Let's speak well of them. And let's be what we're supposed to be. And let's do our best to be for our community. And let's keep it simple. Let's push all the other stuff aside and celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ and be for Cedar Lake.